And there, there's so much planning. And, you know, I talked to a guy who said, he said, Jeff, I've been married 41 years. I had 20, 26 boxes of crates of stuff in my attic to pull out to decorate my house. So you just wait. I've been married 15 years. He's like, you just wait. There's so much accumulation you're going to have over the next 20 years. I'm like, oh, wonderful. Um, but there's so much stuff to do. We're decorating. We're buying stuff. We're trying not to buy stuff. We're trying to not want stuff. We're trying to kind of get our head around that stuff. We're planning things. There's stress and anxiety. And, and, and so Christmas itself begins to get a little bit obscured. Like, what is it? What are we really doing here? You know, what is it all about? And so part of what we do during this season, which is called Advent, which just means arrival. It's the anticipation of the arrival of the coming king is all that that means. We're, we're anticipating the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. But what has Christmas become? Because we kind of lose it so much of us. At least I do. I mean, I told you already. I'm a pastor and I said I hate Christmas. You know, like who says that? You can't say that. I said that's terrible, right? Now, what does it mean for the rest of us if Christmas is really kind of getting obscured? What is Christmas actually all about? What if we were able to somehow re-aim, wrestle our hearts back to the way they ought to be as we start thinking about the coming, the arriving king? So as we do that, as we get into today's message about what Christmas actually is, Last week we had Jordan, our high school pastor who spoke, wherever he might, where, he's, where are you? Where are you, Jordan? Oh, wow, that's going to come up on your review. I just affirmed you in front of everybody and you're not here. Another reason why I'm upset, where is he? Are you here? Raise your hand. Oh, you got, hey, high school students, you have to give him the hardest time. Are you guys hanging out today, going over to the mall, whatever, hang on? Will you just give him the hardest time about this, this moment right here? We should do something really important, like I should pray for him or do something really just sort of over the top for him. Um, I'm not going to do that. No, uh, but anyway, my, I, I just got great feedback from you guys. My mom had the best feedback. This is only, only the way that a mother could say it. She just goes, that Jordan did a really wonderful job. That Jordan. You know, that's the only way mom said it. It's not like, you know, that's not, not another Jordan, but that one, the one, that one. He did a great job. So way to go, mom, whatever she, I know she's here. There you are. Um, so yeah, great job. Super excited as we kind of refocus on what Christmas is. Jordan got us started thinking about peace and the, the impossible idea of three minutes of stillness. And so... Man, that's hard to find, isn't it? Okay, well, we've we got some stuff to talk about when we talk about Christmas. Let's pray, and we'll get into today's message. Lord, we have so many concerns about Christmas. We think about Christmas, and we wonder about all of what it looks like, and we are mostly overwhelmed. We want to be people who experience joy and enthusiasm. We want to be people who are over, I mean, just over the top with anticipation, And for a lot of us, we don't have eager anticipation. We have stress and anxiety. We're losing a little bit of what it's supposed to be about. And so, Father, would you restore that to us? Jesus, we want to be people of hope. We need, if only for a moment, a whisper of hope into our souls. So, Jesus, as we kind of customarily do, as we gather, we pause for a moment that you might speak to us. It might be the only stillness we get during the season of Advent as we are working so hard to prepare everything for everybody else. Jesus, might you prepare us, prepare our hearts. Give to us a whisper of hope during the season, Jesus. Father, we want to be people who are eager 
We also want to be people knowing that there's so much that comes with Christmas that have a lot in our hearts that we're heavy about. So might you bring to, a, bring to us hope in a place where we don't think there can be any more hope. It might not be our story this Christmas. In your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Um, so very good to be with you guys. If you want to follow along in your, out, in, your, in your bulletin, there's a little outline you could look in there. If you want to follow along on, you know, a smartphone or an iPad or something else, and, you know, or you just need an excuse to, like, do something else besides actually, you know, pay attention to the message, you can pull that out now. We're going to be in Psalm 130 mostly for the rest of the day. Uh, but I just want to give you a sense of where we're going to be. And, um, you know, as you're doing that, let me just, let me just, let me throw out a what if question. What if, what if you guys... <clears throat> what if this could be like the best Christmas ever? Like what if this is the best one ever? I mean, I, I was thinking about this like recently. I, I don't think I stopped to think about that idea at all yet. Like what if this is the year that when you're sitting around like the table, when you're like, you know, years from now, 20 years from now, you go, remember 2014? That was the best Christmas ever. I mean, what if you, I mean, we always kind of, I mean, why not? We, we kind of like almost dread the idea of Christmas, you know, like we kind of prepare for it like we're Navy SEAL training, you know, like, here we go, it's coming up, you guys ready for this? You guys think you can handle it? We kind of get all fired up, turn on the coach voice, you know, as my son calls it, you know, you guys ready to do this? You know, it's like, I, I, I guess, I mean, are we supposed to be that kind of ready for it? We kind of dread it, but what if it was the best ever? I mean, what if this really was the best Christmas you've ever had? My guess is you haven't thought that yet. My guess is you're like me and thought, I got to get through this. Woo, I hope I live. But you haven't thought, what if this could be the best Christmas ever? What if it was? And we prepare for it like Navy SEALs. We prepare for it like it's the toughest thing in the world. But what if it's the best that ever was? I mean, I think in some ways what we could say is, we hope that it might be that way. But we don't really believe it. <laughs> we hope that it would be that way, but we don't really believe it. You know, we have this weird tradition we do with all American kids do it mostly, which is to, to talk to Santa about the things that, the, that they hope for. Kids do this all over America. They go to they sit on a stranger's lap. And the kids look at you like, you want me to sit on this guy's lap? It's like, yes, it's okay. He will give you candy. I'm like, oh, I guess that doesn't sound weird at all. <laughs> and he'll charge us $15 to take a picture with our own camera. Seems like a good deal. You know, like, we should probably do this. You know, and these kids all take their pictures with Santa. You know, I, let's just show, I wasn't going to do this. Show, we, we've done it with our kids. There's my, there's my now almost 11-year-old. Keep going, flip him a little faster, I'll show you. There's my daughter who loved that moment. Yep, mm, so cute, keep going. There was our Christmas card a couple years ago. <laughs> yep. And there's a couple, this, okay, pause this one for a second. This one's the one, but that's actually out of order. This was, we weren't, my wife and I weren't planning on being in that picture, but our kids were screaming and we're like, you have to sit on that stranger's lap, okay? So you're going to get over there and we're going to stand there with you. Hey, Merry Christmas. We're all, you know, whatever. So then next slide. Um, this is last year. <laughs> Somehow we've overcome our fear of Santa and we've decided to make ourselves the folk. My, my daughter, Molly, was like, who do you see first in this picture? <laughs> so I just, Santa. Anyway, no. Um, <laughs> But they go to this, they go to Santa, whether or not, you know, the whole debate about with Santa notwithstanding, they go to Santa and they tell him what they hope to get. They bring to him a wish list and they say, here's what I hope I get. Now, in some respects, for nearly everybody, Christmas has at some level, even if it's at like the most base level of hope, there's a little piece of us that's hoping for something at Christmas. 
Everyone. I don't, whether or not you're sure about Jesus, unconvinced about Jesus, whether this whole thing is kind of crazy to you, the whole, all that church is all crazy. Regardless of where you are, there's always a little bit of us that has some idea about hope. Maybe it's the simplest thing of like, I just hope I get whatever I wanted on my wish list that I gave to someone else. I hope they actually understood the hints I was giving them. That might be hope. Some of us, it's like, I hope that my family manages to hold it together for just a few hours on Christmas Eve. Yes, we'll be sweaty. We'll be overdressed for Christmas Eve service. We'll have our sweater on and a jacket and a tie, which we never wear. But we're going to wear it and we're going to sweat and we're, gonna, we're just going to make it. Can they just survive? We hope that that happens. We hope that somehow Christmas morning is full of not just exhaustion, but there's some bursts of joy and some other stuff than just gifts that make it work. We hope for all that stuff. No matter where you are with your relationship with Jesus, there's a hope for stuff. Hope is all over the Bible. Here's what it says. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 15. It says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's hope is all over the Bible. Now, here's the question, though. We understand how Santa works, mostly, right? This is a person who rewards people for behaving well, and they can ask then for what they wish, and if they don't behave well, then they don't get what they wish for. They don't get what they hope for. And the question we're faced with at Christmas, regardless of what you think about Santa, because I actually think this is how people actually perceive their own relationship with God, too, is a lot the same way. We have to ask ourselves an important question. Is there any difference between what we hope for and what we wish for? Is there any difference between what we hope for and what we wish for? Because in the world, they're kind of synonymous. The things that we hope for aren't any different than the things that we wish for. At least we don't treat them any differently. We kind of think we do, but we really don't. Well, we're really ser- we really are hoping for serious. We wish we would go on a cruise, but we hope our family comes together. But really, the substance is the same. What's really the difference? I think people, when they start talking about God, they start thinking about, if I do everything right, if I perform well, then all of my hopes, the things that I really want to see happen in my life, those things will happen. But if I don't perform well, then I get a lump of coal, whatever. Like, you just sort of have this experience. I don't think people really understand, but what we're actually doing is we're treating God no differently than Santa. Our hopes and our wishes, our wish list and our hope list are kind of the way we, we kind of operate the same way. God will give me what I want if I'm not naughty. <laughs> I think we have an issue with hope. People use the word hope all the time. They say things like, hey, don't give up hope. Keep your hopes up. You know, and let's, let's keep on hoping for the best. And you have to ask the question, if the way most people operate with hope and with wishes is the same thing, then you have to ask a really important question, which is, well, what has hope really done for me? What is hope? Is it just kind of a general positivity about the outlook of the potential outcomes of the future? Or is there something more to hope? There's this collection of um, psalms called the uh, Psalms of Ascent. You can see, I put it on your outline, you can see I even left the title. I'm going to take one of those, Psalm 130. Psalms 120 through 134, all 15 of these, are psalms that were sung as people made their ascent to the temple in Jerusalem. So, in the, in the Jewish understanding, no matter where the highest mountain is, no matter where you live, whatever elevation you live at, you're always going up to the temple. It is actually up on a hill, but you're actually always going up to the temple. It is a place of ascent. So it's the, this is you know, figuratively and literally, it's the highest place. So people making their pilgrimages to Jerusalem for different festivals would sing these psalms, these songs of ascent. It's their, literally, it's like their, um, 
their road trip playlist. Like we're making our, we need a road trip playlist. I remember when I was in college, it was like, made it on tapes before you could edit a CD. It was like, where are we going? My buddies and I, we, <laughs> this is super embarrassing. We had made, um, we had made a, we'd made a tape, the entire, I had taped the entire movie of Top Gun onto an audio cassette. And my buddy and I were like huge fans, again, embarrassing. But we would like listen to the, we'd like listen to, we knew every scene, knew every line. We're taking a road trip. We're listening to the movie Top Gun. Not watching it, listening to it. Not the soundtrack. We're actually listening to dialogue from the movie. And we knew it all. It was like embarrassing, right? Now, so there is a soundtrack. When I grew up, as a, I was the only child of a single mom. We had a road trip soundtrack all the time. We had, some of you will remember some of these tapes. These are like high school students. These are like little devices where the sound is magically placed on a little, it's, yeah, you've seen these? Yeah, it's bizarre. It's crazy. Um, but we had, we had, I listened to the, the jazz singer by Neil Diamond. We come into America. You know that, oh man, wore that thing out. Again, remember, single mom, only child. We had uh, Lionel Richie. <laughs> say you, say me. I mean, oh man, say it together. Oh, man, naturally. Okay, that. It's Stevie Wonder, you know. I just called to say. Exactly. Oh, woo, oh, that too. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, what else is there? We had Air Supply. <laughs> I mean, this is the songs I grew up with. These are the songs of my road trip. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. I can't be whatever. The, I'm, those are the songs I grew up with. I knew all the words. I did not realize that was embarrassing that no other kids were, in the, were subjected to the same road trip playlist that I was. But those were the songs we heard. It wasn't until I got older and I found, discovered a Walkman. A Walkman is a tiny device that plays those tapes I talked about earlier. <laughs> it has headphones. You guys call them earbuds. Uh, but, you know, yes. So, I, yeah, it's... You think a Walkman sounds like a weird name for a sound music device, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, iPod's a normal name for a sound device. That makes sense. <laughs> but I had this, and I listened to Oingo Boingo, Dead Man's Party, over and over and over and over again. Just, I mean, gosh, over and over again. Now, there's a road to your playlist. Now, presumably, when you're listening to things, it's informing the content of the journey, and it's preparing you for something. Here is Psalm 130, what is preparing the people on their journey toward Jerusalem, so toward the temple. Here it is. I'm going to read the whole thing, so bear with me. Out of the depths I cry out to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Now, that's the song they're singing. It's one of 15, like I said before, that they're singing. Now, what I want to do is I want to break this down a little bit for you. I want to kind of like break some of what this looks like for us, particularly people who are longing to get their, handle, their, their hands around what it actually means to be people of hope. So let's break this down. First one is this. Out of the depths I cry out to you, Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Out of the depths. And you get this expression, out of the depths. In the ancient Near East, particularly among the, the God's people, the, the Hebrew people, there's a sense about deep expanses of water by which there is only not, wow, that's wonderful, let's go sailing. Well, they would do it. 
There's a sense about fear or chaos that comes from the deep water. And when people are in the depths, they're not talking about, it's nice to be swimming here, it's really fun. They are talking about being overwhelmed in fear, even in some cases surrounded by evil. It's kind of the way that, that's the connotation there. Now, what the author here is saying is, the psalmist is saying, I am overwhelmed. I am over-. Now remember, these are people on their way to the temple, on their way to church. You know, they're on their way to go worship. And the way they start is, out of the depths I cry out to you, Lord, for mercy. Have you ever been overwhelmed? You ever felt like you're kind of swimming and you're running out of energy and you drowning is kind of close? You ever had that experience? How many of you have ever had the experience of being overwhelmed? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you might be a second grader. <laughs> because everybody in the world has had the experience of going, I don't know if I can make it any further. This summer, we're at, uh, we're at the pool. There's a bunch of kids there. And, you know, like my, um, my, my daughter, who is, you know, eight, has this, um, it's, it's kind of, I did not realize this, but, you know, girls from about seven or six until about 16, 17, high school students, you can ver- verify this for me in a second, they just speak almost primarily in screaming. <laughs> it tapers off as they get to high school, but it's mostly screaming. Ah, blah, they see their friends, blah. Oh, there's glass breaking that AT&T commercial, whatever, that sprinkler, whatever, everything breaks because they scream so high. Dogs are jumping over fences and running into traffic. It's, but it's always screaming. So we're at the pool and everybody's screaming as usual. Oh, scream, 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 scream. And eventually as, as parents who are, you know, we probably should have a better eye on the pool. It just becomes white noise and then we become blind to everything. Just can't see anything. It's just the sound is now affecting our vision too. But there's screaming happening in the pool because how else would you talk when you're at the pool? And at some moment, the screaming shifts. We're like, wow, the screaming sounds a little different, but I'm sure everything's fine. They're by a body of water. What could happen? <laughs> Someone screams, Zachy fell in the pool. Zachy's three years old and cannot swim. Zachy fell in the pool. So it's kind of like, we're all kind of talking like, yeah, yeah, wait, what? You know, one of those double takes. My daughter dives into the pool and saves this kid. I mean, she literally saves the three. She lifts him up out of the, out of the water, takes him to the side of the pool, you know, his mom's in hysterics, which who wouldn't be? She's freaking out, you know, and like she's kind of going crazy. And are you okay, Zachy? And she's holding him, making sure he can breathe. And he's, he lives, but he's like terrified. And my daughter comes over to me. And I'm like, Molly, you did a really good thing. You know, it's really courageous to do that. Because there's lots of girls that are there, but she dove in and handled it. And I go, are you okay? And the moment I said that, she just bursts into tears. Bursts into tears. I mean, she just jumps on top of me. I'm holding her. And it's just one of those like, well, she got what, she's, what she actually just did. Because what she understood was, this kid who was, who was struggling for a next breath of air could not do for himself the one thing that he needed. And she knew if she didn't step in, it could have been a lot worse, and so she was overwhelmed. And we have this sense, and it's what all people who are in the depths know, which is this. The one thing I need is the one thing I cannot do for my. The one thing I need is the one thing I cannot do for myself. And so we, overwhelmed people, cry out for God to rescue us. Verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Sometimes the word reverence, it shows up in other translations as the word fear or holy awe. 
But I want you to catch this. There's something about what's happening here. The writer is talking about, the psalmist is saying something about why he might not, might be in the depths. He's saying, here's why I'm in the depths. Because I've done some regrettable things. And what he actually says is, we've all done some regrettable things. Because if you told the one person who's without sin to stand up, nobody could stand. Everybody's got this stuff. And there's this weird, this weird thing, though, with sin. It's kind of like this. We don't really know how to do the, use the word. It's kind of like a, um, I don't know how would you say it. It's kind of like mo- one writer says this way, that when we talk about sin, most of the time we're talking about, in our culture, we're talking about two things, dessert and sex. <laughs> it's like those are the, oh, it's sinful. It's chocolate. Sinful. You know, whatever it is. Or it's, you know, it's a lingerie store. Sin. I mean, just like every, it's just like somehow these are the things we talk about that connects that word. As a culture, we don't really use this, really, this word very much because it has lost its meaning, and we're kind of afraid to actually use it. Like, what is it actually? But you see, there's this, there's this moment here where he's kind of talking about there's a reason for us to address it because God forgives. And what he's saying is it's not just simply that, the word, that I'm crying out from the depths because things have happened to me. What he's saying is, which is really hard for us to get a grip on, is there's been some things that I've done where I've jumped into the deep end of the pool on purpose, or I've created this on purpose. I've got some regrets. I've got some sin. Sin's a big deal. We were at our Thanksgiving service. Some of you were with us. You remember this. I'm asking people that, you know, people are sharing things about how God has worked in their past, past year or so, whatever God's been doing, and some great, beautiful things. Kids are saying the most awesome stuff. And one kid, you know, just goes, it's great. She just goes, I'm, she stands up. Maybe this is your daughter. She's wonderful. This is the greatest line ever. She just goes, I'm thankful for my mom and dad. And for dogs and games and for our sins. <laughs> it was like, wait, what? Like, you know, like, I don't think she, she's like, I mean, little girl. Like, clearly she had been in church. Church people say things about our sins. She just went, and for our sins. <laughs> Sat down. I was like, wait, I don't think you, did you? Great job. You know, it wasn't like time to chastise her or talk about, let's talk about the nature of sin. You know, like, it wasn't like, I don't know. But there's a weirdness we have about the word sin. There's a weirdness that kind of approaches it. I think as we kind of get weird about it, I think it's important for us to kind of get a better handle on what this looks like and why this person would say this. There's a writer named um, Francis Spufford. I'll put his name on the screen in a second. But this is a guy who wrote a book called Unapologetic. Now, it's a great book. This guy's a, he's a writer. Um, he's a reporter for The Guardian in London. So he's, you know, like this is kind of his full-time job. And he writes this book about Jesus. <laughs> but I have to tell you, he doesn't have the same sort of, I would say, restraint on swear words that you and I might kind of try to initiate. So if you, it's a great book, but if you can't get past that, you're going to hate it. Okay, can I just tell you that much? It's a great book, but again, it's got some colorful language. So you're going to know which words I've switched in here, like, but I'm going to give you a little excerpt about sin. I know, this person hates the use of bad language, that little tiny girl, I just know. So true, I'm so sorry. Please come back when you're older. You can handle these language. Okay. All right. Here, I'm going to read you this excerpt. Listen, you'll know the words I've edited, but, you know, here we go. For us, sin refers to something much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to screw up. There you go. Do the math. Ah, high school students, you don't know those words. Okay. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to screw things up, because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here includes moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. Now I hope we're on common ground. 
In the end, almost everyone recognizes this as one of the truths about themselves. For most of us, the point eventually arrives, at least for an hour a day or a season, we find we have to take notice of our human propensity to screw things up. Our appointment with realization comes at one of the classic moments of adult failure, when marriage ends, when a career stalls or crumbles, when a relationship fades away with the child seen only on Saturdays, when the supposedly recreational coke habit turns out to be exercising veto powers over every other hope and dream. It need not be dramatic, though. You can, equally just be, well be, you can equally well just be drifting into a place of more pleasant, indistinguishable little atom of wasted time, one more morning like all the others, which quietly discloses you to yourself. What he's saying is, there is a reason, there is a moment, there is a time in which we go, we do not have it all together. And we might be drowning, and it's important for us to acknowledge that reality. He goes on to say, speaking about the church, he says it this way. This is from his book about the church. I love this. We are the league of the guilty, after all, not the league of the shortly to become good. We are a work in progress. We will always be a work in progress. We will always fail, and it will always matter. Now, what he's saying is, we're a collection of people who screw stuff up. We are. We're overwhelmed at life circumstances, things that are beyond our control, and we're overwhelmed at life circumstances by the things that we've caused ourselves. And so, that's the church. We had a friend over at our house the other night. She's going through a divorce. You know, her kids are playing and doing stuff, and we're hanging out, and she just goes, um, she goes, she, last year kind of marked the beginning of that divorce process for her, and she came to church. She goes, Jeff, I'm so sorry. I came to church on Christmas Eve last year with all my stuff. She's a little more graphic. And I said, that's, that's where it belongs. I'm so glad you were there. She goes, no, I'm just so sorry. I go, this is, that, that's where you needed to be. This is the place where people who don't have it all together. And I'm, I just felt like, oh my gosh, I, I'm so sorry if I ever gave you the impression this is only for the place where people have it together. But it's for people who are a work in progress. People who have made mistakes and have, made, have mistakes made a, to them. This is why we're here. Because God forgives. Because God restores and rebuilds. That's where we have hope. Next. Verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Now the idea of the whole being is that it's like everything I've got, I'm eagerly anticipating. That's what that word wait means. Sometimes it's actually translated as the word hope too. I wait for the Lord with my whole being. Have you guys ever had your kid, you know, told your kids to look really hard for something if you have little kids? And you go, hey, you know what, you gotta go find your shoes. And they walk into the room and you think they just do this. Oh, I looked everywhere. I just, I don't know. I couldn't find them. <laughs> mom, mom, where are my shoes? Mom. And it's like, oh my gosh. They walk in, they just spin around. And, and it's not a, like a whole being is like, I'm, and they, you kind of have to show them. This is what we mean by looking for stuff. And you get down and you show them. It's like under this, it's like under this pillow that was right in front of you. Oh, didn't even see that. So whole being. Okay, that's what we're talking about. I need you to look with your whole being for stuff. Okay. Now, the psalmist says, these people are singing on their way to Jerusalem. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Now, word can mean a couple of different things. It could mean literally the scripture, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible at this time. Or it's also the message or messages that God gives to people. And that message or that word has to stand in absolute stark contrast to the messages or words that the world gives to people. You know the messages that the world gives to you. 
I'll give you some of the words and the messages I've received over the time of over my life. And I'll tell you, I have held on to these things and I have made them the things I have grabbed onto. And they are not wonderful and encouraging. Here's some of the things I've grabbed onto. See if you connect to some of these things. You, Jeff, are insufficient. You are unworthy. You will never be worthy. You're undesirable. You're broken beyond repair. You're a failure without fail. (laughs) You're not enough. You'll never be enough. You always fall short and you are weak. And those things in my life I have held on to for so long. That is the words or the message that the world gives to me. And maybe they're not all that different from the words that you've been given in your own life. Maybe they've been indirect. Maybe you've inferred them because they've been implied to you from a world that says, you know, there's a way that you can kind of have, there's a way that says you're, you're insufficient, you could buy some stuff. You're unlovable, you'll never be, you're ugly. All of these kinds of words that we kind of hear and embrace and understand, and we make them true about ourselves. We hold on to them, we believe them with such ferocity. And the psalmist and the people walking towards worship are saying, we're all, we all kind of screw some stuff up. We need God's mercy. And we've heard the messages of the world, and they're terrible, and we keep believing them. And we wait, and we put our hope in God's word, in a word that comes from God, because it's so different than the way the world speaks to us. We're tired of the way the world speaks to us. We need something different. You know, my house... We still have a landline telephone. This is like, for those of you who don't know, this is a phone that actually has a cord that plugs it into the wall. Not just to charge it, but also to actually, because it ha- without that, it loses oxygen and dies. Uh, we still have a landline phone. It basically, because we have a home security system, we had to have it. it you know, doesn't, doesn't work. We didn't want to upgrade to the wireless version. We probably should or whatever. You know, but we have a landline. And there's only two people who call us on that landline. One of them is, the, um, is people who are telemarketers. The other is my aunt, who usually, after like 17 or 18 rings, realizes I should just call them on on their cell phones because it's easier to answer that phone. But here's what my kids know. They know if the phone rings between 6.30 and about 7.15 at night, whatever's on the other end of that phone is a message that's not worth receiving. They just know. They watch us do this. We've trained our children. It's like the end of dinner, and they're like, the phone's ringing, and it's like, they, they, they will do it now without thinking. They just like, we'll be talking to us. Yeah, so this happened today at school, and they just pick it up and drop it back on the thing. They just know. That's what we do. We've told them when you, hear, when you pick it up and you hear like a momentary pause, that means someone's recording the conversation, hang it up. They, like, they just, if, you, if you're like, hey, how's it going? They're like, hi, would you like to hear about us? You know, it's like, hang it up. Now they know. Now here's what I think for us. We have that phone in our lives. And we consistently go back to that phone to hear the messages over and over and over again. And we've not yet learned that nothing good happens when that phone rings between 6.30 and 7.15 at night. We need a discipline that just says, I'm done hearing that stuff. It is just reminding me that I'm just a screw up and there's no hope for me. There is one thing that robs people of hope more than anything else. It is regret. Because it paints a picture of the future that says you cannot become anything else. Some of you have been answering that phone and listening to those people ramble on for too long and you need to hang it up. There is another place to put our hope and it is in God's word. Verse six. 
I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. This is not a typo. This is actually how you underline or bold stuff or italicize stuff in Hebrew. You have to repeat it. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. A watchman, a security guard, someone watching over land or people or you know, animals or whatever. This is a person who's through the night waiting for the, waiting for the morning to come so that, that hope comes. Whatever animals might have attacked aren't going to come in the daytime. They only come at night. No, no, listen to me. This isn't saying that a watchman is going, do you guys think morning will happen tomorrow? Do you think the sun will come up? I really hope that it does. That's not what they're asking. They are absolutely convinced that morning will come because it always does. No matter how dark the night is, eventually morning will come. And they're hoping not that the sun will rise, but they're hoping in an eager anticipation of what the morning will bring because they know it's going to come. Now hope's beginning to take a little more shape. Some of you are in a place where the night has been long and it has been scary. It has been fraught with danger. You are scared and overwhelmed and you are beginning to wonder, is there going to be morning? It's come up every single day, but I just wonder, this night feels a little longer than usual and you need a fresh dose of hope. I get it. You know, you have some of these prayers that are in our prayer wall from last service. People come in to receive prayer. These are people who are going, the night is long. Please tell me the sun's going to rise again because I don't think I believe it anymore. And the psalmist and all these people singing this psalm are going, we put our hope in the Lord, put our hope in his word, and we wait for the morning like the watchman because we know it's going to come even when we don't see it. Verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The word redemption or redeem is just a word that means like set free, to, you know, out of captivity. Now here's what I want you to catch. The writer starts out by saying, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed, please rescue me, rescue me, rescue me. And then he, somehow he has this transition in which he starts talking to everybody. These people would be singing this song to themselves saying, everybody, Israel, God's people, put your hope in the Lord. You know, hope is somehow tethered to something. It's attached to something. It isn't just sort of, hey, Israel, have wonderful positive thoughts about the future. Ah, he's saying your hope has to be tethered to something. It's not just a vague idea. It's not a wish. It's not just wish fulfillment. It's no, no, no. It's, it's attached to something. This summer I was up in um, Seattle. I was visiting some churches. I love to go visit churches and learn some stuff and see some things. And I'm up in Seattle and visit a church um, of a pastor, his name's Judah Smith, great, unbelievably talented guy, and gosh, he says, he's lying, I just want you to see this. He says this, hope is only as strong as that to which it is attached. Hope is only as strong as that to which it is attached. In other words, it's not just this cloudy concept, this nebulous idea of wonderful thinking. Hope has to be tethered, attached, anchored to something or else it doesn't really do us any good. Hope is only as strong as that to which it is attached. The question is, how strong is your hope? Or more accurately, to what is your hope attached? To what is your hope attached? Now, check this out. This is from Hebrews chapter 6. It says this. We have this hope, as an anchor for the soul, 
firm, and secure. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, this hope, this is a lot, there's a lot in Hebrews, it's particularly this chapter, but you have basically this, this, this hope, what he's talking about here, the writer is, that God is going to make good in all of his promises, that mourning will come, and mourning is going to be delivered, or has been, dawn is breaking in, in this person of Jesus. It's not just Hope will happen because we just, eventually stuff has to change. It's that there is something about which your hope is anchored. Hope is an anchor for your soul. And it isn't just simply how tight can you hold on to. It's that the hope has got a hold of you already and it is anchored. You know, um, Christmas is hope. And hope, this hope, is a person. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Let me just kind of show you the next verse of this, and then we'll talk. It's rich in Hebrew imagery, so it's like, it's a little bizarre, but I'll show you this next verse. Check this out. It, meaning the hope, enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, you guys are like, wow, that is so inspiring. I love, that just makes a lot of sense to me. So let me try to break that down a little bit, okay? Now, this hope, let me just, this is, the Hebrew, these are Hebrew written to people who are Jewish Christians, people who are Jews who have become Christ followers. They have lost jobs, they have been persecuted, they're wondering if they got anything left because it's been dark for a long time and they're wondering about the hope. And here's this writer saying, the hope right here is an anchor for the soul. And then he says this language, rich in Hebrew imagery. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. When you think of the temple, Temple, just to think of it in terms of concentric circles, okay? The outermost layer would be sort of the outer court. Then there's an inner court. Then, just roughly speaking, and then there's a, there's a place called the holy place. And inside that holy place is called the most holy place or the inner sanctuary or the inner sanctum. Now, in that most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. Ark is a word that just means container, the Ark of the Covenant. This is what, if you guys saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, probably, you know, you might, I might have made an audio tape of it and put it on my Walkman when I was a kid. But it's, this is the Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you haven't seen that movie, why not? It's so good. Okay. But this is where the Ten Commandments are kept. There's some holy articles in there. And it's this beautiful box. It's believed that this is where God's up-close presence was held. And, the people would, and, the, and there would be a, a priest who would go in there only once a year at a time called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And in that day, the priest would walk in there, make a sacrifice of an unblemished, perfect lamb over, the, over the, the top of the ark. This is what's called the mercy seat. And what's the, so the blood would spill over this ark, and there would be this rich symbol of God's atoning, which means covering, atoning sacrifice over all the people, that their sins would be forgiven for that year. And what separated this place from all the rest of the other parts of the temple is a, is a curtain. And once a year, this priest would go in there. They'd have to tie a rope around him in case he died. Because if he died in there, they can't go in there because God's holy presence would just devour them. So they're like, you know, they kind of tie a rope on him. They kind of pull it every so often. Hey, you in there? Yeah, I'm still, let me, I'm in. I didn't die. Relax. I'm just trying to do some stuff in here. And he goes in there. He does the special desire. And they would pull on the rope. If he's not, if, they, if he dies, they can't go in there. So they got to just drag him out. So this is literally how they would handle this. Now, This priest goes in there, makes a sacrifice for all the people of this perfect lamb once a year. 
And then they would come out and they would know that God had forgiven their sins for that year. You see in the book of John that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is he who would atone, his sacrifice would atone for everything, all of us who screw stuff up forever. The stuff we have not yet even thought about doing, that stuff has been covered. With me? Now what he says is, this is a bizarre thing. Jesus has entered into this place, this most holy place, on our behalf, making a sacrifice for us. And become, he has become a high priest forever, meaning he gets to go in there whenever he wants, this whole this access to God kind of stuff. In the order of Melchizedek, there is no person in all of Hebrew understanding who is more holy than this guy, Melchizedek. When Abraham runs into him in the book of Genesis, he, Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Immediately he's like, oh my gosh, you're the king. And he gives him a bunch of money. He's like, I don't know what to do. You're holy and gives him 10% of his, all he has. All, everything I got, you can have half of it, or 10% of it. It was just like, whoa, this guy. If you ask someone in the Hebrew, like, who would be reading this book, who, who's Melchizedek? They would say he's the most holy person. The highest priest of high priests is Melchizedek, and Jesus is in that order. Now, with me? Hope is a person in Jesus, God, who walks in to our world and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, who rescues us, who makes his holy presence known and invites us into it forever. That's hope because we cannot do it for ourselves. Hope at Christmas is directly connected to, it's anchored to God. The question we have to ask ourselves as we kind of confront the idea of Christmas as hope, to what have I anchored my hope? To what have I anchored my soul is a better way to say it. To what have I anchored myself? Unless it's God, it's going to be insufficient. Unless it's God himself in Jesus, it's going to be insufficient for what you need. Our lives are tough. Every one of you raised your hand saying you've been overwhelmed in your life. And you don't simply need the well-wishing of people. You need Jesus. Some of you have gone this far in your life and you've never actually decided what it means to follow Jesus. It means that you have an anchor for your soul in this wayward and crazy life. That's why people follow Jesus. It's one of the reasons. I mean, it's just like, man, I don't know what else to do, but my soul needs an anchor. You got a card in your bulletin. It's a tiny little business card-sized little deal. And I reworded it just so it starts with an I instead of a we, but it says this. It's just a paraphrase of this verse. I have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. My guess is in the next couple of weeks, you will feel the wind and the waves pick up. You will feel your soul begin to get a little bit more uneasy, and you will need to be reminded that you have an anchor for the soul, this hope in Jesus. Here's what I encourage you to do. Put this on a dashboard. Put it in your wallet. Put it, put, it on your, put it on your refrigerator because you're going to get to a place where you're going to go, I don't know what else to do. I have this hope, an anchor for my soul, firm and secure. Now, some of you need to have the words of hope spoken over you because you can't say it yourself. You don't even, you were like, I like the card. I don't know what I'm going to do with that thing, but I'll... It'll probably get run to the, di- or the dishwasher, the washing machine, and I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. I don't even, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, because you can't even get there yet. You need the words of hope spoken over you. So here's what we're going to do. In a moment, we're going to pray. The band's going to come up. There's going to be some people that are going to be up here, and they're going to pray 
over you if you want them to pray hope. And you just need words of hope spoken into you. You don't have to come up there and tell them what's going on. If you want to, you can. You don't have to go through the whole story. It doesn't have to be a long thing. It's just they're going to pray this blessing as we started with the message with. You're going to say, I just need hope. They're going to put a hand on your shoulder and they're going to say this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. That's it. Maybe you cannot get yourself to a place where you can say that yet. Or even believe it. Let someone else say it for you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Sis, let's pray together and we'll get a chance to do that. Jesus, we are um, we're in need of hope. We know we're a group of people who have consistently got ourselves stuck, that we screw things up, that we, we're in, our, in the depths, Father, because we have maybe have gotten ourselves there in so many ways. We need hope. We don't just need positive thoughts or good thinking or whatever. We need you, Jesus. We need you because hope is a person. So, Father, grant to us hope. Might your closeness be known to us, among us, in our conversations and, in our, and even in our fears and our hurrying about Christmas. Grant to us hope, Jesus, in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus, why don't you stand up? If you're a person who just wants those words, those simple words, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. If you want those words spoken over you by someone from, you know, one of our volunteers who love to pray with you, just find them up here. They'll be up in front. People wearing some name tags will be up here. You can just find them. Just stand there and they'll just put a hand on your shoulder and they'll pray for you. Some of you might need to engage with the prayer wall to have prayer for you during this week. But this is a time for us to respond to the God of hope. Sing that again, my hope. 
language there that our anchor holds within the veil it's just what we just read it comes right out of Hebrew there is so much to be hopeful for and so much to anticipate and so much that we're longing for in our lives and we need God to embody hope not just be a vague idea about hope but to embody it in our lives I want to tell you um, something once you guys have a seat just one second I'm gonna tell you some stuff and then we'll, we'll we'll pray in a moment um, God has been so good to us He's continuing to kind of give us a sense about what's happening in our future. And gosh, there's just so many great things that are happening 